0: Hello and welcome to the Autism and Employment podcast series. My name is Alex. In this episode, I'm going to discuss another topical subject when it comes to autism and learning disabilities. Here at Beyond Autism, we have been thinking, in addition to neurotypical individuals, could disabled workers take the place of workers from overseas? Would Brexit be beneficial for disabled rights, such as employment rights, welfare benefits and healthcare? I will be exploring these thoughts with my guests, Equalities Officers Victoria and Quinn from Trade Unions, the FDA and TUC. On the 23rd of June 2016, the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union, a 51.9% overall majority. When the United Kingdom leaves the European Union, workers from overseas who want to work here will now be scored on a points based system like many other countries, such as Australia and Canada have it in place for years. The Equality Act was introduced in 2010 and it replaced several laws, including the Equal Pay Act 1970, Sex Discrimination Act 1975, Race Relations Act 1976, Disability Discrimination Act 1995, Employment Equality, Religion or Belief Regulations 2003, Employment Equality, Sexual Orientation Regulations 2003, and the Employment Equality Age Regulations 2006. However, disabled adults are worried that our Equality Act 2010 will change or disappear altogether once the UK officially leaves the EU. Will our rights increase or decrease? According to independentliving.co.uk, these are some of the areas that may affect disabled adults. The legislation of the blue badge scheme, including using it to drive in the EU, Welfare benefits. Brexit could therefore have significant implications in terms of EU nationals in Britain and British expats living in another EU state. The EU public health strategy, their objectives include improving the health of the population in older age, improving surveillance between member states to combat pandemics and bioterrorism, supporting new technologies for healthcare and disease prevention, and of course, employment rights and human rights. Fiona McGee, public law expert at Irwin Mitchell said on human rights, and I quote, the common law and legislation in the UK have provided rights and protections for people with disabilities. In addition, both the EU and the UK have ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities (CRPD)." which guarantees equality of rights of disabled people before the law on issues such as health, education, employment, access to justice, and independent living. The UK is also a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, ECHR, which prohibits discrimination on the grounds of disability, article 14, and offers protection for people with disabilities, through a number of the other articles. The Human Rights Act incorporates these rights into domestic legislation. Kate Lee, Development Director at the Clear Company, spoke with disabledworld.com. She speaks about the health and well-being of disabled workers being at risk once our laws change. And I quote, the TUC has identified employment rights that could well be under threat from a government no longer required to comply with EU legislation. Many of these promote health and wellbeing at home and at work, such as the working time directive, which protects from stress and ill health that arise from working excessive hours, including health service workers. There are currently no articles, data or research yet to see if disabled adults could fill in the gap for lack of workers from overseas. Speaking with my guests will be one of the first known reported discussions on the topic. I would like to welcome Victoria and Quinn. Hi Victoria and Quinn thank you so much for being on today's episode. How are you both today? Very good thank you. It's a bit
1: stormy outside but i um, keeping
0: <laughs> dry and warm at home so yeah can't complain. <laughs> oh, definitely.
2: <laughs> Not too bad over here either. I mean it's a grey day but I'm used to that in uh, the United Kingdom. Um, but yeah, house is warm, heating is flowing and yeah, feeling quite positive.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, luckily it's not snowing where we are in London. I'm really happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. So I'm going to ask you both the first question now, Victoria and Quinn, could you explain to me your roles as equalities officers and how you support workers and members with autism and other additional needs? Absolutely. Um, Shall I, I'll jump
1: in first because Quinn's role is much more important than mine and he can uh, right. give a bit more um, detail around the work that he does. Um, so yeah I'm Victoria Jones I'm a national officer at the FDA which is a trade union that looks after uh, civil servants. Um, we have about 19,000 members and my job is to look after all of the equality work that the FDA does. Um, so that covers everything from yeah neurodiversity, uh, people with physical disabilities and then also looking at our Black members, um, LGBT members, women, and all sorts that comes into that. Uh, alongside that, I also look after the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, uh, recently added development, so I keep forgetting it. Um, and in that bit of my role, I negotiate with the employer um, on all sorts of different things. So that could be pay or terms and conditions or representing members. Um, Sometimes that does overlap with the equality aspects of my job. So we will negotiate policies with the FCDO as well. Um, but it's quite good because I get to two sides. One side is the is the meaty bit where I get to do all the equalities work and then I get to put it into practice with the FCDO. In terms of my sort of direct experience with members with autism and learning disabilities, a lot of that comes through casework. So individuals who come to us and ask us queries about how situations are being handled at work, what their rights are, um, and also sort of more broadly looking at things like a disabled workers survey, which we did at the end of last year, um, and trying to pick up on some of the trends. Is that that cover it for me, if I hand over to Quinn at that point, who who can talk a little bit about his role? Oh, yes. Thanks, Victoria.
2: So just to pick up, my name is Quinn Roach. I am the TUC, which is the Trade Unions Congress. I'm uh, the policy officer whose uh, remit covers disabled workers policy and LGBT workers policy. Um, so I get involved in this kind of at the, at the national level and I work with our affiliated members to make sure that disabled workers are, are being treated equally and fairly at work. Um, so our affiliated unions, they represent roughly 5.5 million workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and importantly, a million of of those workers are disabled workers. Um, And when you think about the number of disabled people who are employed, basically that means, you know, I have responsibility to try and ensure that 25% of all disabled people who are employed are treated fairly and and that's how many, how many uh, members disabled people our affiliates represent. So, you know, it's it's a really important role. And in that role, sort of, I I do kind of research looking at disabled workers' experiences at work, and I help capture and ensure disabled workers' voices are heard and heard clearly. Um, And as a part of that, um, I support our Disabled Workers Committee, um, which brings together kind of 24, 25 disabled activists who are elected at our annual Disabled Workers Conference. Um, And at that conference, what they do is debate and agree policy positions on the key issues affecting uh, disabled workers. So, you know, I think at the core of what I do is the slogan, nothing about us without us. And, you know, we do not develop policy on disabled workers without engaging our disabled workers. Um, So that's a bit about kind of my role. And in terms of of helping um, autistic workers, that falls within the remit. Um, I tend to take a a broader approach, but definitely it's something that we consider in anything we do.
0: Great, thank you both so much. Um, So moving on to Brexit now. Some disabled adults are worried our rights will be affected or changed now that we have left the European Union. Most of our laws in England are after all European laws if disabled workers rights change under new leg- legislation what could that mean for disabled workers
1: i think i think that's a really good question and aquila and i were talking about this earlier and it's it's so broad and and it could really be anything could happen I think and I think that's where a lot of the nervousness comes in the community we look at things like the Equality Act which underpins a lot of our rights at work and the potential for that to be updated and amended and replaced potentially Um, and thinking about how that piece of legislation interacts with European legislation I think is is really interesting and um, Quinn do you want to should we talk this one through a bit would that be the, the easiest yeah, way no, to
2: do it I think that makes sense and I think you know Brexit was a real concern of mine particularly about um, Brexit's impact on disabled workers and LGBT plus workers and um, you know I think we've got to acknowledge the fact that when we were a member of the EU there was a really good two-way street so our, our Disabled uh, you know, the Disability Discrimination Act, our legislation was really advanced. Um, and you know, when it came in in 1995, it was really informative. It informed the EU and it helped them develop uh, one of the EU directives around this area, you know, supporting disabled workers' rights. And so we exported some really good practice we had developed and we're really proud of that. But in turn, when the EU developed their directive, they closed when the loopholes the DDA left open, right? So uh, Disability Discrimination, the Disability Discrimination Act had a loophole allowing small businesses to get out of some of the responsibilities. Well, the EU directive eliminated that. So EU law strengthens us, strengthens our legislation, it strengthens our protection for all of our equality strands and disabled workers. And to sever that is a real concern because we don't want to fall behind. Um, You know, we don't want our legislation to be and protections to be weaker than our European counterparts. So, you know, I think that that's where my concern lies. And Victoria, I mean, welcome to, to hear your take on this.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting point around that two way street. And I think having that opportunity to consider really how progressive you can be in this space has been really welcomed through our experience within the European Union. And it would be a shame to lose that opportunity to really push forward. I think often people think about sort of things like the european convention on human rights and and that isn't impacted by us leaving the eu but i do think some of the conversations that we've been having with other member states around how you progress in this area could could potentially be receding a little bit and i think that's one of one of our concerns is just looking at the legislation that remains and the priorities of the government and any amendments or changes they want to make. I think that is where our red flag comes up um, at potentially watering down some of that anti-discrimination legislation in particular. I think that's our worry.
2: And I think, you know, we we heard the government make their promises that they wouldn't water down workers' rights when this happened. You know, they they said it all over the place, but actually we we're already hearing them start to back away from that in terms of looking at um, the European Time Directive and kind of removing the protections. Yeah that that provides, you know, that limits the number of hours um, someone can work and it's a vital protection, especially for disabled workers Mm. who might have energy limiting impairments or um, mobility impairments. And so, you know, we already see them kind of going back on their word. So we've got to keep pushing and and lobbying for them to do what they said and not water down our rights. The other thing that um, is always really important is thinking about how EU law interacts with the UNCRPD. Um, do you, are you aware of what that is?
0: No, can you explain that to me and my audience please?
2: Yeah, sure. So that's a United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, a, a, that's a, a different legislative framework. That's United Nations stuff. And it's really important. And one of the great things about that is it brings into law um, a, a social model of disability. Um, you know and that's something my members are very firm that we use and and we look into and I just being a part of the EU has meant that we've had to kind of move and progress it more than we would have if we hadn't been Mm -hmm. um not that we have not that our government have done all the things I think they should have done with this convention um the social model of disability Alec do you think your listeners are across what that is
0: no can you explain that too
2: The social model of disability is one of the linchpins of all the work I do. Mm -hmm. And what it says is the best way to involve disabled people in society is to remove the barriers they face. Mm -hmm. Um, So that could be a physical barrier if you have a mobility impairment, or it could be attitudinal barriers or kind of software barriers. It can be lots of different barriers exist, but the best way to ensure disabled people can fully participate is removing the barriers and it is in direct opposition to the medical model. The medical model basically sees disabled people as broken and things that can't be fixed, um, which we disagree with because disabled people aren't broken and they're perfect. We just need to make sure that, you know, our society doesn't treat them imperfectly and throw up unneeded barriers. And it's in direct opposition to the charity model of disability, which sees disabled people as objects of pity, that need kind of charitable donations to, to ensure that they are are doing okay and we don't believe disabled people or workers are, should be pitied uh, or should rely on charity so that's just a bit of the framing of how how we work and I think you know if you're hearing about this for the first time and you want to learn more you should have a look at the TUC's website we've got a little bit of um like a micro module on it just to help you get your head around it but it really does reframe the problem the problem is not disabled people the problem is society
1: that's so helpful Quinn. and I think you should never apologize for talking about this stuff because you are uh, an expert on it and I'm just yeah always good to hear you talk I think I think the social model of disability is really interesting and I think the work that the TUC has done to kind of embed that in your thinking in this space has really had an impact on affiliated unions so the fda affiliates to the tuc and we try and contribute and you know influence and work together on on a variety of different things this has been really interesting for us as we look at the work we do for disabled workers Um, Quinn, you said it right at the start but i think it's worth repeating that nothing about us without us is the kind of the thread that we're trying to pull through our work as well and I think removing barriers is a really different way of having a conversation with an employer and um, I think in the civil service context we often talk around um, reasonable adjustments and occupational health assessments and all of those elements that come into something when you're negotiating on behalf of a member or with a member but I think actually employers need to change the way they perceive any kind of issues I'm saying that with my with my fingers in the air you can't see that but those barriers and and the way that employers perceive staff with disabilities I think really the conversation around that should change and I think often we do that on a case by case basis and you have an interaction with a line manager or with HR and you can chip away at that but some of the work that, that Quinn does around changing the whole dynamic of it and the whole conversation I think has a has a really broad reach and it's something that we are really grateful for from the TUC.
0: Yeah I think um, a lot of disabled people are worried like now that we've left Brexit and our laws may change like and you said Victoria maybe some of our reasonable adjustment laws may change or like we won't be seen by an occupational therapist um, or get an occupational therapist report and even things like um, a blue badge. the blue badge scheme is European as well so that may change <laughs> for people that want to drive overseas so it affects like people in so many different ways.
1: Absolutely. And and I can understand why, why people will be nervous about it. And I think I think there's a couple of things that we can do proactively. I think in in the workspace, I think talking about the value of individuals with a wide range of experiences and perspectives is really beneficial, particularly in the civil service, Um, given the work that our members do in shaping public policy, having a broad demographic of staff who are working on that is just a a really huge benefit for for ministers and for policymakers. It's, It's really, really good. And I think when you start to value the contribution that staff as individuals make, then you then do feel proactive around removing those barriers, as Quinn was saying, to enable them to contribute fully and to really have an impact. I do think some of the concerns around yeah, some of the changes is more around how do we push things in the right direction. So a good example, which goes back to COVID, is actually looking at remote working and how that has completely changed in the last year we're now seeing employers who are really going above and beyond and embracing that. Now, if there was legislation around this, you know, we were initially all told to work from home where possible. It goes to a certain level, but actually employers are taking it further. And I think my hope for this is that we'll see employers take things further where they can and where they can see a benefit and a value uh, in making sure that their workplaces are accessible and their, their staff feel safe and also included.
2: Yeah, I think that example that you're giving around um, working from home is, is such a, a key one, and I think what we know from kind of all the surveys we do in the TUC and all the conversations we have with disabled members is that for years now, disabled workers have been asking to, to work from home and have been told repeatedly that it cannot, it is not possible, it is not feasible, you cannot work from home. Yeah. And yeah. then kind of COVID-19 happens up and suddenly, they're all asked to work from home. So one of the things that the TUC really wants is we want disabled workers who have been able to work from home and want to continue to do so to have a legal right to work from home. You know, it's a reasonable adjustment. We've seen it can work. I've been working home personally for almost a full year now, and I know there'll be lots of other people like that. And so, you know, one of the ways we bid unions support disabled workers is to listen to their requests and to try and make them law. And homeworking is definitely one of those things, which is good for the employer and, and good for many disabled people.
1: Absolutely. I don't know about you, Quinn, but when uh, the prime minister started working from home, all of the casework I've ever done and I've, where employers have said it's not possible, particularly in our area where our members are fairly senior and they are managers and leaders, they often get pushed back about being visible and being present in the office and you just thought I, I, when that happened I just thought you know if the prime minister can do you know <laughs> there really is no excuse anymore to, to not let people work from home if, if that's what they need to do.
2: I always think that kind of our, our trade union reps who are doing casework are, are are working so hard and are really helping to progress our members issues so I mean I think one of the things that we also know the TUC is that one of the most common issues our reps deal with is um supporting disabled members and it you know through a variety of things and. And, Alexandra, you mentioned earlier kind of worry and fear about reasonable adjustments and the legislation that underpins that. And I think that is real. So, you know, we are trying to empower reps and disabled members to have those open, honest conversations about the adjustments they need and to put in place a system where they do not have to renegotiate them all the time. So I think that's one of the things that we hear a lot is that when a disabled member's line manager changes or they move role, they suddenly have to start again from scratch. You know, they have to negotiate their um, reasonable adjustment from point one and it's just stressful and disheartening and unnecessary. And so, you know, the trade union movement have been looking to kind of bring in um, and standardize disabled um, persons reasonable adjustments passports. And so that should really help take the sting and stress out of the situation um, you know and it's just you know a, a testament to our members so trade union members created the idea of the disability passport um quite a w- quite a while ago in bt and then we have tried to standardize it because what we found was happening was that employers were starting to produce their own and and i think that's a really good initiative but they were missing some of the point um, and they were missing out the fact that this is a a legal duty they have Um, and they started to integrate things like um, shared parental leave and other kind of rights which are weaker so we had to kind of put out like a template which was clear on the fact it's a legal right disabled person should own it it should only be shared with their request so you know I I think focus on the law is important but also focus on um, easy tools to make the law easy to implement is also something you know we try and bring forward
1: i think it's quite it's interesting how that reiterates that comment you made right at the start when around that two-way street with the creation of some of that eu law and um, particularly on the back of the dda it's, it's the same sort of conversation we have with employers isn't it you know we can actually do so much more when we work together on these things and create something that picks up on all of the the quirks and the opportunities and the good ideas and i think that's another great thing about the tc because As an affiliate, we can go forward and say, look, we've negotiated this policy on workplace adjustments because the civil service doesn't like the the phrase reasonable adjustments. And we have many arguments about that. But we can go to the TUC and say, look, we've got this workplace adjustments passport. What do you think? What's missing? You know, has anyone else got any good ideas that we can kind of incorporate? And I think that's that's my sadness about leaving the EU is that we missed that opportunity to pick up on some of those or Perhaps not missed completely, but it's not as easy to pick up on some of those um, innovations and those good ideas.
2: And they, they don't have to be costly, and that the passport is like free to everybody on the TUC website.
0: Amazing. Um, thank you both. So, the last question is the UK is to introduce a points based system for overseas workers. Countries like Australia and Canada have had this system in place for many years. With less overseas workers applying for low-skilled jobs, could adults with autism and learning disabilities start being employed to fill these roles? And if they are employed in these roles, how can they protect themselves against disability discrimination?
2: Do you mind if I come in on this one, Victoria? I, 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 I saw this question and I thought it was really interesting and I think it understands the reason disabled people aren't getting jobs. Um, So disabled people aren't missing out on job opportunities because there was competition from other people. Um, They're missing out on employment um, massively because of unlawful discrimination, uh, negative attitudes towards disabled people and and structural barriers. That's the reason we have such a low rate of employment for disabled workers. So I think that's the the first kind of key thing to kind of keep in mind. And then how can disabled people protect themselves? Well, when I think, you know, and particularly people with autism, I would say join a union straight up. Uh, And I know you would expect that considering where I am, but we are experts in protecting disabled members and disabled workers. There are roughly 4.2, 4.8 million disabled workers and we represent a million of them. You know, this is our bread and butter stuff. So we are experts in it. Um, And also, you know, There's that point I said right at the beginning, nothing about us without us. We have the structures in place here from disabled members about the key issues facing them and how to address that. So our members told us that universal credit needed to be stopped and scrapped and that is the policy position that I am pursuing. Um, What else? Our, Our disabled members told us that they wanted a national independent living support service and we are pursuing that, you know, you want voice, you want your democratic voice to be heard, join a union. Um, I, I really think I, I can't stress enough that, that it wasn't competition from people coming from other countries that were stopping disabled workers from, from being gainfully employed. It really is those negative kind of attitudes and structural barriers. And I, I can say this firmly because I've done the research. Um, you know, so the TUC for the past three years has looked at the disability employment gap. But I would also say that you cannot talk about the disability employment gap without talking about the disability pay gap. They are hand in hand. So when we talk about employment levels, we know that roughly 50, 51% of disabled people of working age are employed, right? And that's incredibly low. Mm-hmm. Non-disabled people have an employment level of 80%. Um, and the other thing we know is, you know, you, in this call, we're quite, you know, it's about autism and it's about people um, with learning disabilities. And the other thing we know is that there is an evidence gap. Okay. So I can break down employment levels and pay gap levels by different strands based on government research. And that's how we do this. We analyze the research that they provided us, Um, but there is no, from what I can, you know, there is no bracket or box, which, which tells me about neurodiversity. I can't tell you what the levels of uh, employment are for people who are autistic or are neurodiverse. And I would like to know I'm I am neurodiverse, I'm dyslexic. I would like to know the employment levels of, um, I can tell you about the employment levels of people with learning difficulties and that's the language they use. So the employment level of of people with learning difficulties is around 14, 15%. I mean, and that's heart wrenchingly low, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. And then when we look at what the pay gap is for, for that group, because that's again, the only group I can tell you about within this kind of frame, it's about 60%, it is, oh no, sorry, 62%. It's, it, is, it is massive, you know, and what our members tell us, and well, when I our members mean our affiliated unions tell us is that a lot of people with learning disabilities, they start on their path to employment by volunteering and the intent is that that voluntary role then turns into a real job. Mm. Well, what we are told is that never transpires people with learning difficulties or learning disabilities it's just i hate this language but it's language like they never move from um from being tense or getting learning like job experience into paid employment and that's something we're really concerned about and are continuing to uh, pressure too
1: i think for me that's that's a huge huge issue there quinn and i think that's perhaps more concerning to me than the introduction of this this point system and whether that's going to make a huge difference for disabled workers i think actually there are so many inherent problems with the structures that that we're working already that this points-based system i mean i think i think the points-based system has also been sold as a bit of a solution to every problem that we have in the employment space in this country and i just don't think it's it's gonna it's gonna reach there but uh, I think, Alex, your question just around sort of what are the proactive steps and how can disabled workers um, protect themselves from disability discrimination. I think that's really key because I think it's such an individual thing, isn't it? And um, we would obviously advocate people joining a union, but then there's some really good practice, small things that you can do around, you know, when you're engaging in work, getting things in writing. You know, whether that's confirmation of, you know, time, start dates, what the offer is, what your salary is, the number of people that come to me and even in the civil service, they haven't got a contract for what they're meant to be working on and how long that's meant to last. I think that's that's something that you can do that's really proactive and sets you in in good stead. Um, writing things down if you've got a problem at work it's one of the first things we say to our members and our reps is to sort of write things down chronologically make a note of it whether it's a comment or an email or you know being treated less favorably if you can write that down that's really helpful as well and then taking proactive advice whether that is from your union or from a fantastic organisation. So we affiliate to Disability Rights UK, who are incredible. They've just got a wealth of knowledge about uh, workplace issues, uh, ranging from reasonable adjustments to some of the mispractices that are out there around recruitment, which is a really huge issue as well. So I think there's, there's things you can do that can proactively protect yourself from disability discrimination. And the law, to an extent, is there to support you. But often in these circumstances, I think you need to take that professional advice early on which is why we would would obviously advocate people joining a union to get that that support that they might need
0: so like it's just conjecture like at the moment because l- we literally only just left the european union so us discussing like brexit and like job opportunities for people with disabilities is like really early on but mm. we, we can only hope that brexit will introduce more job opportunities like for people with disabilities since there'll be less people from overseas coming over, but it's just too early, like to like say for definite whether it will happen. But we we hope so.
2: I mean, I obviously want there to be more disabled workers in employment. The gap is outrageous and upsetting. Yep. But unless we tackle the real issues that are caused that are stopping disabled workers from getting into employment, we won't see a change in this. And you know it. There might be more opportunity, but unless we stop unlawful discrimination, we stop people intentionally not employing disabled workers and screening them out at, at the early processes, unless we address the structural barriers which stop disabled people from, from getting in work, unless we address the fact that most disabled, you know, a lot of people who are on universal credit who are disabled are also working. And when we stop start changing the narrative around Universal credit benefits and disabled workers. We aren't going to get there, and I, I completely appreciate your point around the hope that things change. But I don't think that this system is going to benefit anybody. You know, it's not if we don't address the real causes of of the employment gap, the disability employment gap. We won't. We won't make any change.
1: This is a huge change, um, and I think there. With investment and opportunities for disabled staff, I think you could see this as an opportunity to provide a fresh chance, but I, I'm not sure if the appetite is there from from government and from business to do that. I think that's, that's the point I think that Quinn has made that I'm not sure this will see a about turn in the practices and the, and the bad practices that are already out there. I mean, it's a, it, I agree with you, Alex, about being hopeful that, that it could be that driver. But I think for me, there's, there's kind of three things that really need to change. I think the first is investment, um, things like access to work and giving people the right equipment they need to be able to do their jobs and doing things in a different format and looking at how business practices from recruitment to retention just change completely to make sure that there's a, a level playing field not even a level playing field but that you're treating people equitably I think the investment is really key I think the opportunities for disabled workers I mean we're seeing I know you've done your podcast on this already Alex but the impact of COVID-19 on the number of roles that are available the number of opportunities I think there has to be some investment in those opportunities as well and then finally I think attitudes have to change um, from employers around that piece we were talking to earlier around removing barriers and understanding the value and the contribution that you know neurodiverse and disabled workers can bring and can and do bring to the workplace every day I think without those changes that are kind of fundamental I think the the changes to our border controls and our immigration practices I don't think will necessarily deliver what we need them to unless they are part of a broader refresh of how we we value our workers and how we protect them at work as well
2: and you know and just to add on top of that like if we want to address the employment gap and we do we also need you know as you've said before your greater government action and one of the things that i would like to see to help address this and get more stable people into employment more autistic people into employment is for the government to introduce disability it's ga- uh, disability pay gap reporting right so they consulted Absolutely. on they consulted on bringing in race pay gap reporting, and we think they should also do more than consult. We think they should bring in disability pay gap reporting because what that would do is it would force employers to look at their internal practices. It's the practices, like you said, um, recruitment, retention, promotion, access to training. We want them to look at that, examine it, and see what is stopping, to say, people from getting into work and then progressing up. Um, you know, having a, an upward Career trajectory I and mean, that would help
0: with it. Absolutely. I don't know if you both have read this but I read this a few days ago that the government wants to introduce a guaranteed job scheme for people for disabled workers that, that have lost their jobs during COVID-19. Do you think that will actually happen?
2: I actually haven't seen that. I mean I wish I had seen it. It'd be interesting to see what, what they're saying. I think something would help um, but so I, I hope that they take positive affirmative real action would make
1: me so happy <laughs> yeah absolutely i th- I think it'd be really welcome and um, I'm sure we've probably got members who are scratching their head trying to figure out how that will <laughs> turn <laughs> yeah. into into practical policy i think I think it's definitely a step in the right direction, particularly uh, because of the impact of covid on 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 work um but the details of it I think would would be challenging um challenging to get right, particularly Depending on the employers that you're engaging with, and um, before I was working, for, before I joined the FDA, I used to work for Unison, looking after some of the big private contractors who deliver public uh, contracts, public services, and. Some of the practices there when you look at these huge organizations are really really challenging to um to influence and to improve so i think the devil will be in the detail but i think the principle is sounds really really positive and i will go away and and look that up i think yeah like i read that a few days
0: ago like i really hope that they do like keep this i really hope that it's like goes through and it becomes like law
2: um, just as just to say in the meantime one of the things that the TUC and we've been kind of really concerned around um, is the number of kind of, you know, shielding workers, disabled workers who were told to shield um, who who have employers who haven't allowed them to do so.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, So what we are now calling for is um, the government to make it law that, you know, temporarily that that group of workers, shielding workers have a right to furlough rather than employers having an option. I mean, it's not gonna help a huge number of people because it, you know, we're talking about smaller and smaller numbers, but it's so important that during this pandemic, um people who've been asked to shield to protect their lives, to protect their health, and to protect our NHS from being overcrowded aren't forced to choose between their livelihoods or their life. And you know, and also one of the ways that the policy that we make here uh, impacts on on everyday at people's lives,
0: Victoria, is there anything you wanted to add um, before a wrap up? No, I,
1: I don't think so. I think it's it's I've really enjoyed having the conversation and having the space actually to to think about some of these these big issues. And I think the uncertainty around our future outside of the European Union. I think even outside of this kind of the law and you know the changes to immigration. I think there's a a huge feeling of uncertainty at, at the moment amongst amongst a lot of workers, but particularly a, around sort of workers with, with disabilities or uh, learning difficulties. I, I think it's a really interesting conversation. and I think it's really great that you guys are looking into this and facilitating these conversations. So thanks, Alex.
0: Thank you both so much. Um, and thank you for all the work that you do for um, us disabled workers and making sure that our rights are in place and our reasonable adjustments are in place and everything.
2: No worries. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed taking part.
0: <laughs> Great. Thank you both. Bye.
2: Bye.
0: I would like to thank Victoria and Quinn for appearing on today's episode and for having a very interesting discussion with me. Victoria and Quinn discussed the important work they do as equalities officers to help and support disabled workers, such as putting in place reasonable adjustments at work and removing any barriers disabled workers may face. They also discussed the research and advocacy they do, such as wanting the UK to introduce the Disability Pay Gap Scheme and how they look at disabled workers' experiences at work. They discussed with me that our European laws, like the Working Time Directive, should not change now that we have left the European Union, and that law is specifically vital for some disabled workers who cannot work longer hours for health reasons. We briefly touched on COVID-19 and how they're advocating for disabled workers who can work from home and they should be legally able to work from home and that people who have to shield for health reasons should not face financial hardship as a result of not working and that furlough will be a legal right and not an option. Quinn discussed some statistics with us, such as how many people with learning disabilities are out of work Unfortunately, neither Quinn nor Victoria think that there will be more job opportunities for adults with autism and learning disabilities now that we have left the EU. Quinn said there was no competition for jobs between overseas workers and disabled adults when we were in the EU, and that is unlikely to change now due to the barriers and discrimination adults with autism and learning disabilities face gaining employment, and change is needed first. Victoria agreed that although Brexit may bring new opportunities for disabled workers, attitudes towards disabled workers needs to change first, and investments in disabled workers need to stay. Such so as the government's access to work scheme and equipment needed to perform work tasks. We can only remain hopeful that Brexit will be positive for disabled workers, but at this early stage, there is stress and worry for our rights. Thanks to the work that Victoria and Quinn do every day, Hopefully, employment statistics will increase and there is less barriers to employment. Thank you for listening.